0: Chapter 8. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it in common script. That is for anybody to read, for the masses. Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. Verse 2 And I called in reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Eberachiah, to witness for me. So there were good men there that he could choose. Why does he call them in? To testify that Isaiah did in fact prophesy this or predict this before the time, before it was fulfilled. Otherwise, they might say, well, he just claimed that he prophesied it to build himself up as a prophet. Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. That kind of terminology has word links all the way through the book of Isaiah and particularly references to the king of Assyria. In uh, chapter 10, for example, verse 5 and 6, where it says, Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. I will commission him against the godless nation, that is the Lord's own people in their apostate state. Appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread them underfoot like mud in the streets. So the king of Assyria there is given power over God's people to do the plundering and the spoiling. So it's along the lines of what we've just been reading that in that day my Lord will use a razor hard at the river, the king of Assyria, come and do this. Destruction. Verse 3, And when I had been with the prophetess, she conceived and gave birth to a son. This is the third son spoken of. And he calls his wife the prophetess. And that implies that she herself is a prophet in her own right. It doesn't just mean Mrs. Prophet, Mrs. Isaiah. It gives her credit for who she is. When I had been with the prophetess, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, Name him mahershalal Chashbaz, which means hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil, which is what he wrote down that the two witnesses attested to. And then the explanation, verse 4, For behold, before the child knows how to say father or mother, as again in a youthful infant state, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be brought before the king of Assyria the king of Assyria is going to come in and conquer those lands and plunder them and impose his puppet rulers over their kingdoms as they thought to do to Judea. Verse 5, the Lord addressed me again and said, Because these people have rejected the waters of Shiloh, which flow gently, and rejoice in Redson and the son of Romalia, therefore will my Lord cause to come up over them the great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory." And verse 6, when it says, these people, implies that the people have rejected the Lord's covenant too. Just as King Ahaz rejected his God, so the people of the Lord have rejected him. In this case, speaking of the people of Judea as well, not just of the ten northern tribes, Ahaz has rejected the Lord and his people, King Ahaz's people have rejected him. They have rejected the waters of Shiloh. What's that? The waters of Shiloah are the same place where the prophet Isaiah met King Ahaz with his son, Shariah Yeshub, which waters symbolize the Davidic dynasty. So the people rejecting the waters of Shiloah means that the people have rejected King Ahaz or the Davidic dynasty. So just as King Ahaz rejects his God, so the people reject King Ahaz. Or they manifest their rejection of God by rejecting King Ahaz or the Davidic dynasty. The waters of Shiloh which flow gently, even though King Ahaz may be an oppressor of his people, may be oppressive, he's not nearly so oppressive as the king of Assyria. The great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory, that's the river in flood that floods all over everything and inundates everything. That's real oppression. The people too must be fearful, as it says earlier in chapter 7, The minds of the people were shaken as trees in the forest are shaken by a gale. And so they, it says, are rejoicing in Retson and the son of Romalia. They're in favor of the northern coalition. And they want to go along with Retson and the son of Romalia's plan to displace Ahaz and put a puppet ruler on the throne. So there, the people are involved in the conspiracy, in other words, to overthrow their king, the ruler of the lines of King David. Because these people have rejected the waters of Shiloh, which flow gently, and rejoice in Retson and the son of Romalia, So they're rejecting God, covenant relationship, as manifested by their rejection of the house of David. Therefore will my Lord cause to come up over them the great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory. So they're going to get more than they bargained for. Instead of forming a coalition that's able to prevent the Assyrians from coming into the land, the Assyrians will actually come in like a flood. He will rise up over all his channels and overflow all his banks. He will sweep into Judea like a flood and passing through, reach the neck. His outspread wings will span the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Whose land? The land of Emmanuel. In the days of Emmanuel. Who is Emmanuel? King Hezekiah. When did the Assyrians come in and flood the whole land of Judea? in the days of King Hezekiah in chapter 36. See, we have such preconceived ideas. We take things out of context and we use scriptures for proof text and yet we neglect what the context is saying. Does it still apply to Christ? Certainly. Does it apply to others in Christ? Most certainly. That's the context. The Assyrians come in in the days of Emmanuel like a flood, go right up to the neck, The neck leaves the head. What is the head? The capital. Remember the capital city? The word for capital and head is the same word. It leaves Jerusalem. In chapters 36 and 37, the Assyrians come in and they've conquered the whole land of Judea and the only place they haven't conquered is Jerusalem. Lay siege to Jerusalem. 185,000 of the Assyrian army lay siege to Jerusalem. That's fulfilled in the days of King Hezekiah and the next generation. So Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. The king of Assyria rising up over all his channels and overflowing all his banks implies that he comes out of his own land, right? His land is up there by the Euphrates. Or if today it's somewhere in the land of the north, and they will swarm down from there like bees, or they will flood from over there. And that's how the Assyrians did it. They just kind of flooded over everything and annexed other lands that way. Also, he's not likened to a flood only, but also to outspread wings, like the bees. And of course, it has modern connotations, too, depending on how you look at it, maybe a modern type of warfare. So they're going to come into the Promised Land, the Assyrians will, in the days of Emmanuel, the land of Emmanuel. If you apply this prophecy to Christ, then you would say, well, you know, this is the land of Jesus Christ, Right? Anciently, the land of uh, Judea was the land of King Hezekiah, the land of Judea, promised land. And though nations form pacts, they shall be routed, give heed, you distant lands. You may take courage in one another, but shall be in fear. You may arm yourselves, but shall be terrorized. So people are taking courage in one another, meaning they're forming pacts and alliances to try to prevent the Assyrians from invading their lands, like Retson and Pekah and It's not going to work. Those pacts and treaties are not founded upon the Lord. It's the arm of flesh. To be in fear is not of the Lord. To be terrorized, only the wicked are. All the way through Isaiah in any situation. Also, later on we'll see in Isaiah that the idolaters are the ones who kind of take courage and lean on each other. They buoy each other up. Saying, courage man, hang in there. We're going to hang in there together and we'll be all right. What happens to them? They all get wiped out. Though you hold consultations, they shall come to naught. Though you make proposals, they shall not prove firm God is with us. So those idolaters, or it implies that these people are idolaters, and of course to rely on the arm of flesh is a form of idolatry. Holding consultations they shall come to naught, these proposals don't prove firm. God is with us. What is that? Emmanuel. God is with us means Emmanuel, who is God with. He's with those who rely upon the Lord, right? He's with those who rely upon him. He's also with the Assyrians against the masses of his people, the wicked of his people. He commissions the king of Assyria, like I read a moment ago, chapter 10, against his own people. In chapters 36 and 37, the Assyrians actually claim that God is with them. Against his people. They have made themselves God's enemies, and God is with the Assyrians. He raises them up against his own people to punish them. But he's also with the remnant. He doesn't prove to be with the Assyrians for very long, just so long as they do the Lord's work, so long as they are instruments in God's hands to punish the wicked, then he's with them. And after they have done that work and tried to totally destroy God's people, even the righteous, then God is no longer with the Assyrians. He no longer empowers them and takes away their power. And the Assyrians themselves are destroyed. But for a while there, he strengthens them or allows them to do that destruction. Verse 11, The Lord spoke to me, clasping my hand, and admonished me not to follow the ways of these people. Now, the clasping of the hand is like the experience he had in chapter 6, personal visitation with the Lord. Not to follow the ways of these people, meaning these alienated people, these covenant-breaking people. Otherwise he would have said my people, which is the covenant formula. For he said, do not call a conspiracy all that these people call a conspiracy. Be not afraid or awed by the thing they fear. So there are those who are saying there's conspiracy. Is there conspiracy? Yes, there is conspiracy. But these people are seeing conspiracy everywhere, and uh, it just isn't that overwhelming. You don't need to be that afraid or awed. You don't need to be in fear if you have the Lord's guidance, if you have the Holy Spirit for your guide. But sanctify the Lord of hosts, verse 13, making him your fear and him your awe. So displace that fear with a righteous kind of fear, not actual fearfulness of God, but kind of reverence and esteem, an awesome feeling toward God, who has more power than all your enemies do, and relying upon him fearing to offend him, fearing to transgress, living a righteous lifestyle, doing those things that God asks you to do. That's fearing. That's fearing God. So if you do that, he'll be a sanctuary to you. A sanctuary meaning a holy place. This is the Hebrew word for holy place. Standing in holy places. It also means a place of protection. It's used as such in the Old Testament. So it's a place of protection really for the righteous or for the holy ones, those who are holy. We saw in chapter 4 that those who survive the destruction are called the holy ones. But to the two houses of Israel, in other words, to everybody else in general, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Ephraim and Judah, a stumbling block or obstructing rock and a snare catching unawares the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So instead of being a rock that is a place of surety, where you're founded upon the rock and when the storms come and the floods and the lightnings and the thunders, they beat upon you and you still stand because you're founded upon the rock. That's a different image from this image where the Lord becomes a stumbling block or an obstructing rock because they've transgressed and now they're in a situation where they have to experience the covenant curses that come along with transgression. So to them, God becomes a snare Catching unawares. Captivity is covenant curse. They're in a situation of covenant curse. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, the two houses of Israel, everybody else in general. The mass of God's people have become alienated. They're experiencing covenant curse and now only a few people, those who sanctify the Lord of hosts, make him their fear. To them he'll be a sanctuary, just a remnant of people. Verse 15, many will stumble into them and when they fall shall be broken and when they become ensnared shall be taken captive. And that captivity, of course, is by the Assyrians. They're the ones who actually do the capturing of the Lord's people. But it was because the people were not grounded in the Lord. So do we have people today crying conspiracy everywhere? They see conspiracy in every nook and cranny and they're trying to uproot it and expose it and everything. And that's kind of a loss of perspective. It's not the focus that the Lord would have you have, but focus on the Lord himself and doing good. Verse 16, For the Lord has said, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, meaning there are disciples all the way through this. Even the time of Elijah, for example, Elijah was growing very despondent because he thought he was the only prophet of God left. And there were 500 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of God. and and Let's say that 5,000 men in Israel have not kissed Baal yet. Out of the hundreds of thousands or even millions of people, there were a few. In this context, they're called his disciples, Lord's disciples. And the law and the testimony are bound up among them, meaning they're confined to them. At some point, the Lord withdraws his law and his word from among the masses when they reject it. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who hides his face in the house of Jacob and expect him. Again, that personalized individual, I, I will wait for the Lord. Like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's just individuals, a man here, a man there, a remnant of people. I will wait for the Lord. That's a word linked to many other instances of waiting for the Lord throughout the book of Isaiah. They wait for him through the time of trouble. And when they wait for him and wait for him, even almost beyond the point of endurance, then he comes through for them in the end. That's the test of faith of the elect. Waiting for the Lord, relying upon him. Who hides his face from the house of Jacob? Meaning the rest of the people, the masses, people are visible in general. He's cut them off. He's no longer blessing them. He leaves them to the hands of their enemies. I will wait for the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and expect him. Not just waiting and waiting and waiting, but expecting, fully expecting. That's faith. That's trust. That's hope. Verse 18, As for me and the children the Lord has given me, we shall be signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. That's a beautiful verse. The word children here may be Isaiah's own literal children, but certainly also his disciples that he had were called the sons of the prophets. They shall be signs and portents. Yes, his son Sha'aryashub and his son Maharshe al Khashbaz, and probably his adopted son, Emmanuel, Hezekiah, they are signs and portents in Israel, because their names signify something. Their names actually predict what will happen to the people in general. From the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion, in uh, the psalms like I mentioned, where it says, "The Lord is with us," it also says, "The Lord dwells in Mount Zion." He dwells with us in Mount Zion. And in chapters 36 and 37, that name Zion or the word Zion comes to the fore. Also in chapter 4, we saw Zion in Jerusalem, there is deliverance because the Lord dwells there. He dwells with his people, and when he's with his people, there is protection there. We shall be signs and portents of what's coming. We will be safe with the Lord, we'll be in his sanctuary. Verse 19, when men tell you to inquire of mediums and spiritists who huddle together and mutter. So it's a time when people are turning to other forms of communication with God instead of direct revelation. They're turning to mediums and spiritists. Well, what kind of answers do you think they're going to get when they transgress commandments of God that way? What kind of spirits on the other side anyway would answer such requests for information? Only evil spirits would. And they'll give you some truth and some falsehood with it. And so, It only leads further and further astray. When we tell you to inquire of mediums and spirit who huddle together and mutter, say to them, should not a people inquire of their God as their covenant God? Should one inquire of the dead on behalf of the living for doctrine and for a testimony? Should you find out things of God from them who've rejected, who wouldn't even answer you anyway if they were of God? because they were forbidden to. So you're only going to get what you deserve when you do that. For doctrine or for a testimony. We're talking about binding up the testimony, sealing the law among the disciples. It'll be sealed up among the righteous in that day. The wicked will not have access to it because they rejected it. So you can't get doctrine or testimony from them. Surely while they utter such words devoid of light, so they're unenlightened people, they roam about, embittered by hunger, which is a covenant curse, which is a consequence of their transgression. Why turn to covenant breakers for answers? And when they are hungry, they become enraged, and gazing upward, curse their king and their god. And that implies that they are disloyal to God, and also to to the government that God has placed over them. They will look to the land, because in the cities it will all be oppressive and there's no food. But there shall be a depressing scene of anguish and gloom and thus they are banished into outer darkness. But they may go into the countryside but there's nothing there either. It's just outer darkness like the five foolish virgins are banished into outer darkness. Why? Because they rejected the light. And so they're made to suffer during that time as a consequence of rejecting the Lord. The elect go into the sanctuary, right? verse 14. See how similar this is to Jesus' parable of the ten virgins? The elect go to the sanctuary and the foolish are out there suffering the consequences during that awful time of destruction and invasion.